Welcome to today's podcast. I'm John Offord. I'm a freelance broadcaster based here in the UK. Joining me today is Austin Hauk from the US of A. Um, Austin is a GLAD campus ambassador and is currently studying at the University of Virginia, studying computer science. Austin is also the founder and CEO of Homoglobin, a non-profit dedicated to furthering equality in healthcare and education for the LGBT community. Austin, welcome to today's show. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Basically, I stumbled across an article, a fantastic article that Austin had, had written, and it was entitled Growing Up Queer with Asperger's. And it was fascinating uh, for me for me to read that article because it touched on so many interesting issues. And I also should say that I suspect I was once in a relationship with someone who has high functioning autism, basically Asperger's syndrome, but that's uh, that's never been diagnosed. But anyway, it's a subject that is of particular interest to me. But I just wanted to, to start by asking you, Austin, what is Asperger's syndrome? Asperger's, it's a condition on the high functioning side of the autism spectrum. Now they don't call it Asperger's anymore. They call it just the autism spectrum disorder. Just But when I was uh, younger, that's what I was diagnosed with. Basically, uh, patients who are diagnosed with it usually experience a difficulty in socializing, uh, perceiving emotions, um, anxiety. They have other symptoms as well, um, like a, you know, a keen interest in a couple of niche topics that they can go on and on about, typically without realizing that other people might not be interested. Just general um, social difficulties and sometimes uh, speech difficulties. So when were you diagnosed with um, autism? Can you can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, so when I was younger, about eight or nine, um, I was diagnosed with Asperger's and uh, around, you know, around the same time I was diagnosed with a couple other things uh, like ADHD, generalized anxiety disorder, um, even a, a very mild form of Tourette's, but I think I, I grew out of most of those symptoms. But uh, it was it was when I was pretty young, so I've been living with it for about about a decade and early on it was it was pretty rough uh, for me and for my parents obviously and my sister at the time I now have a younger brother as well but uh, I think I've 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 improved a lot uh, with with dampening my uh, symptoms since then. And did you? It must have been really tough for you growing up. And and I know that in your article you talked about being bullied at school for being different. I mean, just tell us a bit more about your childhood and and how that was in terms of accepting you know your sexuality, but also the the fact that you were on the autism spectrum. When I was a lot younger, you're right. Like you said, I I did get bullied a lot in school. Um, it was just like you said for being different. When whether different meant gay or different meant uh, having Asperger's or any of the other uh, disorders that I've struggled with. That continued a lot through elementary and middle school. And I, I loved school and I still do. And it, it broke my heart because there were just some some really you know jerky kids at school that, uh, that made me not want to go back. And it also complicated things at home. Um, I have always been really stubborn. I've made my parents' lives pretty difficult. And uh, my sister and I have always had a pretty okay relationship, but you know, my brother, you know, we've never gotten along and it's, um, it's made things pretty hard when I was, uh, when I was about 10 or, or 11, I got put on this, uh, it was, I think it was experimental at the time, this medication called Risperdal. And, uh, that made me gain a lot of weight. Uh, and now there are studies that showed, um, that Risperdal has like this really high chance in men of giving them like hypo, I, I forget the name for it, but basically tissue growth on and, and increased fat storage. So I gained some weight 
And thankfully, I've lost a lot of it now. I'm, I'm skinnier now than I've been in a while. But that just sort of added, you know, fuel to the fire. Uh, I was overweight. I was weird, you know. It, it, so that was that was a lot of my my younger childhood. So you mentioned that you are on the high functioning end of the autism spectrum. So I just wondered if you could tell us what the difference is between low functioning autism spectrum disorders and, and high. Yeah, so high functioning autism spectrum disorders uh, like Asperger's are differentiable from other disorders on the spectrum because, you know, the people who are affected by high functioning disorders are much more likely uh, to be able to live independently generally or are more able to function in the way that uh, that neurotypical people and society want them and expect them to. They're still on the spectrum in the sense that uh, they experience um, milder forms of the same symptoms that um, people on the lower functioning end experience. But I, I consider myself incredibly privileged you know, to not be, you know, worse off and, and to be able to carry on a, a next to normal life and, and, you know, go out into the world while it's been hard, uh, but, you know, live by myself at school. But that's, that's generally the main difference. People on the lower end um, on, you know, when you get like really low on the, on that end of the spectrum, uh, in terms of functionality, they might need a caretaker. They might have, you know, incredible difficulty finding a partner. They could have trouble doing basic things that society expects of them. So that's the major difference. I just wondered if I could just talk with you about some of the, the traits of Asperger's and, and, and just go through a few of them um, just to kind of get more of an insight. First one, I guess, is rigid thinking where maybe perhaps you're not able to see things from someone else's point of view uh, and there's a difficulty accepting that there are many other perspectives, not just a single rigid, correct perspective. Is that something you experience? Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that, Austin? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I experienced it in a few different ways and I'll sort of break down, you know, the, the different yeah. things that you mentioned. So part of it is is definitely a rigidity in, in thinking about, you know, what is correct and and a stubbornness. Um, I've always been really stubborn. My parents always joked that uh, I would do do well in, in as a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but um, it's it's a yeah, it's a rigidity in thinking and 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 thinking that um, that there's no other way that can be correct. And just wanting things to be wanting there to be an answer to things. That's uh, also something that that I've struggled with with some of my relationships with, um, you know, one time uh, if somebody like people are irrational. Right. And and yeah. we and we, you know, uh, people on the spectrum, including myself, we may feel the, the urge to fit people into our view of what we believe is rational. And when we think something doesn't have an answer or we don't know what it is and we can't find it out, it's really frustrating. So there's that. There's the rigidity in thinking. And then the second one that you mentioned is sort of a difficulty in, in empathy. And um, it's not that, um, that it's a total inability to empathize. It's just that it's very difficult for us to show empathy in the way that is, you know, deemed typical for, for people uh, that are not on the spectrum. So like, for example, I, something that I wrote about in the article, it's not that I don't feel, you know, emotions or empathy. I know I feel them. I feel them pretty strongly in some cases. Um, but, but it's just, it's yeah. sometimes very hard to show it in a normal way. Uh, I know um, people 
who I have fr who I'm friends with that are also on the spectrum, they could be like they could be totally like in love with someone, but like they could and they could do those things that maybe like a hundred years ago would have been seen like oh he's writing me letters and stuff, but now it seems a little like maybe to neurotypical people it could seem a little bit like stalkerish or something, but but they are genuinely trying to express how they feel and and trying to figure out how to do it in a socially acceptable way, but. The great thing about empathy is that you can, over time, learn how to express it better, and you can practice and practice and just get better. Um, and I think that's something that I like to believe that uh, that I've been able to do. Growing out of that uh, childhood phase when everybody's a little selfish, you just want to make sure, you know, I at least I did that that I was trying my best to to move along with that. Is it fair to say that people on the autism spectrum find it hard to form friendships and prefer to be on their own? It really depends on the case. I would say that's generally true for me. I've always usually had um, a couple of, of close friends and just and and no no more no fewer um, my sister she is you know she's smart she's athletic she's on the soccer team and the basketball team and she has a lot of friends and I always you know sometimes I would find myself comparing myself to her and like you know she has so many friends I have like two or three really close ones when I was younger so I would say that it was a little difficult not just because of a drive for independence and, and feeling like, like I have agency over my life, but also just because sometimes I feel just this crippling sense of awkwardness and, and, and not knowing exactly how to approach people. Now, recently, you know, in the last few years, and, and I, I credit it a lot to, to taking theater for five years. I took theater for five years before it. I, I was definitely a wreck. Um, and I didn't really take care of myself. And uh, I was, I was, uh, you know, pretty lonely. Uh, but, it helped me come out of my shell. It helped me with some of the speech problems that I had and nervousness. And uh, coming out on the other end, I think um, it's a lot easier now for me to, to just enter into a casual conversation or meet new people. And that's sort of a product of the job that I have to do now with my organization. Uh, I ha I've had to learn how to interact with people that I've never met before, that I you know, perceive to be much more important than me. And uh, it's, been, um, it's been difficult at times, but I've generally had a good experience and a good learning experience. Parties, for especially for people on the spectrum, are stressful for a lot of different reasons. Um, one is the social aspect of it and, and finding it challenging to to you know carry on a conversation or you know because at, usually at parties you don't know many of the people there especially at college but another big thing that I think a lot of people gloss over is a lot of people on the spectrum can find that they are hypersensitive to light to sound and it could be that very you know large numbers of people they make a lot of noise there's so much going on they and people on the spectrum sometimes are you know hypersensitive to what they what's going on around them and that's why sometimes in school or at parties or at work people really across the spectrum but even more so with people on the lower ends of the spectrum can just get overwhelmed uh, sometimes have a meltdown um, it, it is really challenging but I do feel like I've never been a huge party person and uh, you know I think I went to my first frat party <laughs> in um, in October and the only reason why I, I 
I despise fraternities, but, but I went because it was, uh, the LGBTQ fraternity, which is, we're like one of the only, we have one of the only, uh, fraternities like that in the country. And I figured, well, I guess these people would be, you know, a little more chill, but I went and sure enough, it was pretty overwhelming. Uh, everybody was drunk except for me. And it just felt, I just felt bad. Uh, so yes, I do definitely, you know, empathize with that and, and that feeling that it's just a little overwhelming. Thank you. And you, you talk about sensory issues there, so kind of like bright lights. So could that mean something as simple as turning down the brightness on your mobile phone screen, for example, or dimming the lights in uh, where you live and maybe just having small lamps everywhere as opposed to a, a bright light in the center of the room? Is is that the kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, really differs from person to person. For some people, yes, it's bright, harsh lights, which for some people um, make, you know, make them um, have difficulty going to school where like all lighting is pretty artificial and harsh. Um, some of them don't like going outside because of the sun. Um, some people have trouble with like loud noises. And uh, that's why, you know, some including, I don't know if you've seen uh, the show Atypical. The main character has these headphones that he wears sometimes because um, because he can just get overloaded and, and just need to retreat into um, a safe sort of feeling that um, that is familiar to him. And and that's something uh, that I think that actor really nailed. I think, you know, hats off to him and really everybody in that cast. But yeah, no, I, I think that um, it varies widely. For me, usually I don't have problems with it, but sometimes when it gets really loud or if it's like a repetitive noise, sometimes it just uh, bothers me. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's just like a regular noise, like like a jackhammer on the street or something, or, or if it's my, my little brother drives me crazy, I'll tell you that. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I, th- I, w- I would say it depends, but I would say that many people on the spectrum do experience some form of that. You talk about noises, I guess it could be perhaps a noise that maybe a a neurotypical person might never notice like the perceptive hum of a fridge or even an oven so it's not always a a loud noise is it in in that sense yeah no definitely it could be like you said the hum of the refrigerator the hum of the school lights maybe the smoke detector it's regular beep that it makes so like some different things and it doesn't have to be even like some people could even like just totally block it out while people on the spectrum might just find it not only annoying but over amplified and uh and and just in their heads constantly what about smells as well so keeping with the sensory issues maybe um your partner insists that you wear a certain aftershave so luckily i have not had any trouble with with smells but for i know i know for a fact that some people do struggle with that um not only because i don't, I don't know if you knew this but um smell the sense of smell is the closest sense and the most connected sense with your memories and so for somebody on the spectrum not only are are, are your sensory inputs magnified but if they've had a traumatic experience with a certain smell, that is just going to be amplified. So like, for example, um, if they were bullied and the kid who bullied them wore like some sort of cologne or something, whether it's like a musty smell from like their old bedroom, whatever the case is, if, if it's linked 
particularly to a traumatic memory, that can cause a lot of problems. And, it, and you know, normal people might be able to, to train themselves out of, you know, thinking about that smell, like the smell of an old partner or, or, or you know, your old bedroom. But for people on the spectrum, it's much more difficult. And because they're much more likely to experience trauma when they're young, uh, that sort of sticks with them and it sticks in their memory. And smell is sometimes the first thing that triggers those memories. What about eye contact? Is it is it true to say that people with Asperger's find it difficult to make eye contact? Either difficult to make eye contact or maybe too much eye contact. I It's always something that I've sort of had to try to find a delicate balance towards because for a lot of people it just comes naturally. Like, I'm going to look at you sometimes, I'm not going to look at you other times. And it's just sort of something that's like programmed into people who aren't on the spectrum. But for people who are, either it's just a total lack of interest in making eye contact or it's like a, like too much to some uh, neurotypical people like, you know, you're staring at me. That's kind of creepy. So, but yeah, I, I would say it depends, but one or the other usually. What about often people have said that people with Asperger's tend to eat the same bland foods every day and maybe that's down to the sensitivity to taste and texture and that that's why they might be seen as fussy eaters. I just wondered if you could identify with that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always been picky. Uh, my parents um, have always been a little frustrated. I've brand branched out a little bit and, and I and I, I don't eat the same food, but I eat the same maybe fifteen to twenty foods. I don't know. I, I, I couldn't put a number on it. But that is is probably for two reasons. One, because of maybe some sensory uh, hypersensitivity. The other one being that people on the spectrum tend towards order and routine and things not changing. If things change, it makes it, it really upsets people on the spectrum and they can learn to, to be a little more adaptive. But it, most people on the spectrum, whether high functioning or low functioning, usually have a tendency at least to go towards order and routine and sameness. Um, it's why, you know, even as somebody, you know, on the high functioning end, I segment out my days in my calendar and, and just have a, you know, a routine that I that I stick to more or less because I like being knowing what's coming and knowing what I need to get done. And so I would say that the taste thing and, and being a picky eater, um, many, many people on the spectrum, including myself, experience that. But it's for it's it could be for multiple reasons. Talking about routine then. So if someone uh, may Maybe suggested to you to go to the theatre on at uh, the last minute on a, on a Friday night, for example, uh, and you know that wasn't originally in, in the plan. I mean, how, how would you how would you react with in that situation? I used to hate that. I used to hate that so much when people like you you would have your whole day planned out, and then someone's just like, "Let's do this. Let's do this." And uh, my my parents of uh, points frustrated me because they're people who just sort of like go with things and just come up with like what we're eating or or what we're gonna do on the weekend like sort of on the fly. That used to really bother me when I got to college and I and I realized that just people in general sometimes like to because you don't know if you want to go see a movie like like maybe the thought just occurs to you and then you want to do it. Uh, so that's something that I've that I would like to think that I've gotten a little better about. Um, I've 
been a lot more spontaneous this year and, and the previous year than I have been probably at any point in my life. But it is something that would really, really bother me when I was younger and still sort of lodges in my head as like a minor nuisance now. Uh, but yes, I, I would say it bothers me and it bothers a lot of people on the spectrum. Have you ever heard that sometimes people with Asperger's tend to take the, the tags out of clothes? Again, it's attached to the uh, obviously sensitivity of, of the feeling of the the tags on on the person's uh, neck I just wondered if you could identify with that in terms of taking tags out of clothes. Yeah, I used to do that. I don't do it anymore, thankfully. I've just sort of like trained myself to, to just get used to it and grin and bear it because I realized that those tags that help people wash the clothes the right way. And so I'm actually looking at the tag that I've still left on this uh, my my uh, my clothes right now. And, and yeah, uh, I used to do that all the time, but... Um, just because it would just bother me and either if it's up on my neck, it would make my neck itch or, or um, if it was on the side, it would just, just be a sort of like a feeling like a thorn in my side. But I, I learned to get used to it. Um, and I guess I'm lucky that I was able to. And, and just one more point before we move on as well. I just wondered if sometimes a neurotypical might say that someone with Asperger's likes to do everything in a set way, like even making a cup of tea or putting the bin out or washing the pots. And it, and that from a from neurotypical's point of view, they, they might see that person as being difficult or deliberately being controlling and not willing to compromise. And they're always thinking that they're right all the time. I just wondered if you could just elaborate on that yeah and it's been like a uh you know a, a source of just general frustration with both both from my end and from my parents it's been mostly my my parents and i um you know i i always would would have a certain way of doing things um i remember that because uh, i so i love math this is a good example i love math and in math and in and in computer science on a you know as a whole there are so many ways to solve a problem and I would however way the the teacher or like my classmates would be doing it I would just not want to do it like that and probably to a lot of people it was seen as just like extra work or sometimes not enough work or you know just being difficult in general I don't know why I would do it I would just do it differently. And in luckily when you get into computer science, which is why it's a field that I that I really like, is you realize that nobody really cares as long as you get it done and it runs right. And there's there's um set parameters as to what is a good answer and what isn't. Uh, and like I mentioned before, we want to have a good answer to something. So while in school and in and at home, they want you to do things a particular way. And if you do it a different way, they think, uh, you know, you're being difficult. That's part of the reason why I picked computer science as a, as a degree, because there's so much more flexibility and I can do things however strange way it might be perceived. Is it fair to say that people with Asperger's are quite high achievers and kind of quite intellectual in terms of that they often work in, in, in industries that you've just talked about that you do like computer science or accounting or engineering or even teaching because it's quite methodical in, in organizing lesson plans I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that yeah I mean I think there is a differentiation between there's and something that I definitely do not have and sometimes I wish I had but is this thing called savant syndrome which sometimes uh, accompanies I think it's about 10% of people on the spectrum have it I, I definitely do not um, <laughs> but um, savants are, are are, are just geniuses 
and so so people like Albert Einstein, I think he had savant syndrome. People like Alan Turing and, you know, lots of people throughout history who, you know, it's hard to make a historical diagnosis, but but they were believed to have savant syndrome. They're just just brilliant. But most people on the spectrum have a few niche interests that they know a lot more than average about. Like, you know, one of my hobbies that I like, you know, one of my niche interests is is I like politics and I know like a lot of stuff about like Virginia politics and and, and national politics. And and uh, another one is like, you know, I like computer science, I like math, just things like that. We we have like these really weird uh niche, I guess they would be considered weird, I should say, uh, niche interests. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's why a lot of us people on the spectrum go into something that does have some formula to it. Maybe like you said, teaching math, computer science, things that are like, you know, segmented and orderly. And so, yeah, I, I would say that that's true, but I wouldn't necessarily say that we're all like exceptionally talented because uh I, I just think that there are some some niche interests that that yeah. we maybe know more than average about is it a misconception or is there some truth in it when people say that if you're on the autism spectrum and, and obviously everyone's different and you know we can't generalize but the, the people might be prone to meltdowns and fits of rage if things don't go their own way i just wondered what your thoughts were around that it really depends i know i used to have meltdowns um when i was younger you know it gave me a hard time in school um when it happened it definitely made me more of a target for um for some not so great treatment by uh, my classmates because where i live um you know you go to the same elementary middle and high school it's very hard to get rid of that that perception, even if you try really hard to to practice and change and, and grow, um, it's really hard to get rid of that. But I would say it really, really depends on the person. They we're all you know reacting in different ways. But uh, I would say that meltdowns are definitely a, a, a possibility. And I just wanted to talk about relationships, if if, if I can. And, you know, sometimes people say that it's difficult if you have sometimes if you have a neurotypical person dating someone that is on the autism spectrum because there can be some communication challenges there i just wondered if you personally have had previous relationships with people on the spectrum or or with people that you know we, we call neurotypical yeah i've had i've had a few um relationships with people who aren't on the spectrum and i've learned i've learned one major thing from it and that is you sort of have to be upfront about it so for a long time i was really really embarrassed about it and I would not tell anyone. And that's sort of why I, I wrote about this in the article. I was able in school eventually to, you know, I, I had all of these, you know, I had this, um, all these accommodations that I had available to me, but I wouldn't take them because I didn't want to be, was so embarrassed and I didn't want to be different and I didn't want to need more time or to take a test in a different place. I wanted to so badly to hide that fact. But, but because of doing that, when I actually needed help or I needed to be um, have a little more understanding um, and leeway granted to me um, when I needed it people just wondered why and like you know well if you're supposed to be normal you know why why do you need more more help than than average people and then it's sort of the facade sort of falls apart and then people sort of lose trust in you so something that I that I found uh, in relationships my first relationship and, and my most important one to me anyways was that I sort of decided to keep it under wraps because I felt I've I've uh, I've I've had experiences where you know I've I've uh, people have found out in the past this time 
I know I, I I feel like I can I can keep it locked down and it's fine and and it won't matter. And the truth is, it absolutely mattered. You have I have I learned that I have to communicate that sometimes it's hard for me to read them uh, and read what they what their needs are. Um, sometimes uh, I get anxious um, and feel sort of out of place. Sometimes uh, I a big thing that I struggle with is is tone. And something I used to struggle with was actually jokes and sarcasm. And both all of those things combined to like maybe I would accidentally be too loud and I would have no idea that I was being too loud. Uh, and it would upset people. And and that's a big problem that I that I had um, in that relationship is that like I you know I really loved the person I was with. I really cared about them. But it was really really hard for for me to to show it in a way that was meaningful to them and and it you know it's it's really like it really upsets me because i know now that that the, that stuff was you know some stuff that i that i might have um you know the tone that i used sometimes or i was just going to say that it's um it's just it stinks because afterwards you think oh well i can just i can just practice this and i'll get right back into it and i'll try again but no it's all about being upfront and saying, look, I have this disorder. I have a hard time doing these things. Just be patient with me. Um, I promise, I promise that even if I don't show it, that I really do feel this way. And you just have to find somebody who takes you at your word. And that's really all you can do. Absolutely. Presumably it takes a lot of guts and it's quite a brave thing to do to present to people the way you exactly are and not, not hide anything about you. And, and, and I guess that, that, that comes with quite a lot of confidence and, and being self-assured in who you are. But not everyone is, I guess, that confident. And maybe some people, there are lots of adults that are undiagnosed with it, with autism in, in their 30s and 40s. And maybe they, they still hide that from, from partners or others wondered you know what what gave you the, the strength to um, be completely open in terms of well your sexuality but also the fact that you're on the autism spectrum so my sexuality was was sort of a different experience in terms of like acceptance that was sort of a long process I came out at first I you know I, I was having I was very confused about it so at first I I didn't want to say I was gay because I didn't know for sure and I was like 15 and I didn't want to you know say anything so I just came out as bi and it wasn't it wasn't on my terms uh, my mom so parents of people on the spectrum may find sometimes that they become overprotective and a little bit like a helicopter parent and uh, I wanted to like you know just uh, explore like how I felt about people by you know I wanted to go on a date with this guy at a movie theater and so I told I told her that I was going I wanted to see a movie with a friend and uh, she asked a lot of questions and then it sort of just came out and I was just like she just like was oh uh, and we didn't talk for a couple days and that was really bad and I would say that it really decent understanding didn't come about until I was about 18 and a half and it was uh, it was just because they they wanted to like you know forget about it because I think they were brought up and and they weren't like explicitly you know homophobic they didn't like hate gay people mm. they my mom had had a, a best friend in college who actually turned out later to be gay but um, you know, they didn't hate gay people, but they also weren't like, they weren't brought up in a, a community that was accepting of, of those people either. And so I think my dad and my mom struggled a lot with it personally. And just uh, like my dad, even after I came out first as bi, then as gay, even after would ask me like, hey, did you see any cute girls at school? And I would just be like, 
I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I know from your article you were saying that, uh, you know, you were embarrassed of being gay for a long time when you were younger. You said that it paled in comparison to your shame of having Asperger's. And, and I know that you then went on to say about how you also can see the positives uh, of the, the autistic condition that you have and that you, you work harder to make connections and understand yourself and others better because of it. And I just wondered, you know, you had to come to terms with your sexuality and having Asperger's but it's interesting how you the Asperger's one was the one that was particularly difficult for you to come to terms with well yeah I mean because I did I did struggle a, a bit with with my with my sexuality um, especially with my relationship with my parents you know because of it but I guess the reason why I said that the shame of, of having Asperger's um, that I used to have the shame that I used to have yeah. uh, is yeah. um, was much greater uh, was just that at the time that I came out you know it was 2016 and and people you know marriage equality had been legalized and I live in Northern Virginia which is a is a relatively you know moderate liberal community that generally is accepting um, and I was very lucky for that but something that's just universally hard in in this country and especially in public schools here is just how how horribly it treats people um, who aren't um, who who have a disorder that affects their um, social um, or or motor functions and and it, it's just really bad. You know, my my school when I was in elementary school, it had a zero quote unquote zero tolerance policy. What that meant was um, even if you were the person getting you know the crap kicked out of you, uh, you had been a participant in a fight and you would get suspended. And and just the toxic culture that 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 we allow on with even our youngest uh, people in elementary school, on the playground, in classrooms. My little brother, my little brother's 11 years old and. And he still thinks, you know, gay is an insult and and thinks that gay people are weird. And, uh, you know, I just I didn't want to have like I desperately wanted to to because uh, I figured, you know, being gay is something I can't help. But but maybe I can maybe I can hide my, you know, being on the spectrum uh, because it just gave me so many more issues that I had to deal with. So I would say that that's probably the number one reason why why I thought that it was much more challenging um, to live on uh, yeah. on the spectrum. Fascinating. And I just wondered, um, and again, I, I appreciate these are just statements and, um, and we don't want to generalize, but some people say that people with Asperger's, when it comes to relationships, sometimes they suddenly withdraw from relationships because they're, they're not good at explaining their feelings to other people. And sometimes they can misinterpret the experiences, feelings and ideas of others and then come to the wrong conclusions and then go back to the rigid thinking once they've decided something there's there's no going back and that's why they completely withdraw i just wondered what if you had any thoughts around that i would say that you know people who are neurotypical they have their needs when it comes to having a, a partner on the spectrum whether it's you know showing empathy showing love just the the needs that they would consider to be typical but the people on the spectrum also have their own needs they they have a, a hyper a heightened sense of of not um, trusting just anybody whether it's because they've had trauma or whether it's because they have a special need to to feel safe and welcomed and and listened to and like like you're not just going to easily leave them I mean I know that I've had a lot of you know trouble with that and um and just feeling like uh if i can't 
trust that you'll be here even when I'm difficult. How, like, what does that say for, for me um, in the long term? You know, they say, uh, I think there's this statistic that like 9% of people on the spectrum get married. That's a really daunting number. And marriage isn't, isn't indicative necessarily of, of a relationship, but it is indicative of the fact that, I mean, just, you know, so many people on the spectrum just struggle with feeling just safe. That's the biggest thing. Feeling safe, feeling like you can trust the other person, feeling like it's like you don't have to hide. Those are really important. Uh, and even if you don't, even if the people on the spectrum, even if I don't say it out loud, like I need to be like, even if I don't realize that I need that, like I need to be safe and I need to be accepted. That's what I really do need. Um, yeah. So I would say that uh, they maybe I wouldn't have I don't have any experience with abruptly withdrawing, but um, but I wouldn't be surprised if others did. You know, yeah. it's just yeah. trust issues. Yeah. So do you think it's possible then? I mean, this isn't maybe it seems like an obvious question, but do you think it's possible for a neurotypical and, and someone with Asperger's to have a, a, a long lasting intimate relationship? I think that it is. I think that there, I think that it's possible. Um, and I think that it happens um, more frequently than is reported. I, um, I'm a, so I go to UVA, like we mentioned earlier, and there's this guy who um, has been really cool to me. And, uh, you know, he walks me to class and we watch Netflix together and we just sort of spend time together and it's not like anything official, but but um, but I've you know been hanging out with him for you know a decent while, and it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. So I mean, I would like to say that it's possible. I think that it's possible because of a previous relationships that I've had, and I'm just I think it's possible just because I'm generally an optimist about that sort of thing. It takes a lot of work. And you and I've learned, especially with the person that I that I mentioned just now, I I just came up out front, you know, after a, you know a couple of uh, days when we had been um, hanging out, I just said, hey, I have to tell you about this thing that that I have uh, dealt with, you know, since I was you know nine, uh, and um and if uh, and if you have a problem with it, like I just wanted to say it now, just so we got that out of the way. And yeah. and he was just sort of like he didn't even blink. He just was like, OK. And uh, so I um, I really appreciated that. And I just realized, you know, I have to be open. I have to uh, work really hard at it. And um, and so, you know, I, I call him and check up on him. Uh, it's been we've had to we haven't seen each other for a little while because, you know, they sent us all home from school because um, of the virus. The, uh, but, the, um, the lock lockdown situation. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And uh, northern Virginia in particular, the, our state was going to get reopened actually on the 15th of May. But uh, then our governor delayed it because northern Virginia has like a ton of cases. So so that stinks. But I mean, I, I try really hard. I check up on him. He does the same. Uh, we talk. We we still watch Netflix with this uh, Netflix party. Oh, yes, I've heard about that. So that's um, you can do that with the uh, premium level membership, right? To Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if I have the premium level, but I but I, I'm still able to do it, which is which is really cool because uh, we've been able to watch some shows together and it's been really nice. That's, that's brilliant. I, I need to try that out as well. <laughs> so <laughs> I just wondered if you could tell us about whether Asperger's is hereditary. The science isn't really like conclusive on what causes it. 
it's believed to have some genetic factor that may increase the likelihood. It's sort of like, actually, you know, there's been like a large discussion on like the gay gene. I think it's roughly the same story. I think that, um, I mean, and I'm no, you know, geneticist. I think it's, there are genes that predispose people to have a higher chance of being gay or lesbian or, or something in the middle or something else entirely, uh, and I think the same is true for, for autism. I think that um, part of it is genetics, part of it is epigenetics, and part of it is early childhood development. But I would say uh, it's not entirely genetic because my parents, uh, neither of them, uh, they, they, my mom has generalized anxiety disorder, uh, and I got that from her, but neither one of my parents have, um, are on the spectrum. Are there any um, comorbidities with Asperger's? So like um, other uh, diseases or, or disorders we're more likely to have? Yeah, yeah. I don't know about any, like, you know, lethal diseases or, or anything like that. I I would say that uh, there's, you know, if you have a disorder on the autism spectrum, uh, it's it's very probable that you might have another disorder. Like I said, um, I was diagnosed with uh, Asperger's, ADHD, generalized anxiety disorder, and again, even mild form of uh, Tourette's, which was, uh, I think, later um, rescinded. But but yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely common for, for, for people on the spectrum to have other disorders as well. Sometimes people get confused between uh, someone that has been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder and Asperger's. And I just wondered if you, you had any thoughts on why that might be. I do have a description in front of me, which I'm um, quickly trying to find. But I guess it's a, a personality disorder characterized by a long-term pattern of exaggerated feelings of self-importance, an excessive need for admiration and a lack of empathy towards other people. Yeah, I think that to like an outside observer, um, Asperger's and, and just the people on the spectrum in general and um, people with uh, NPD can seem similar. I would say that there are a lot of important distinctions though. Uh, so an Aspie and, and someone on the spectrum may not understand social situations or social cues, uh, while someone with NPD usually does understand, usually is very suave and, and, and fluent uh, and uses that knowledge of social cues to control and manipulate people. Uh, so that's a big major difference. At people with Asperger's don't understand usually the hurt or pain they cause or are less likely to understand while people with MPD, they do understand uh, and they don't care. There are uh, similarities in behavior, but they're caused by wildly different reasons. And I think at the core of it, it is People on the spectrum and people with Asperger's simply have less understanding of the consequences of their actions and like less understanding of their emotions. Whereas somebody with NPD does these things intentionally um, to further their own ambition and to to further their own sense of, of self-worth. Whereas like, you know, you mentioned um, like, you know, a big self, uh, self-aggrandizing, um, you know, stick with uh, mm. people with NPD, people with Asperger's at the very least uh, myself and a lot of people on the spectrum really don't care what the outside world really thinks. I mean, we're all, you know, quote unquote weird and we don't really care about like seeming like that because we're in our own world and we 
just, you know, we operate independently. So I think that's a big difference is just the, the meaning behind our actions is, is the biggest mm. difference. Austin, I just wondered what you would say to anyone listening that is uh, maybe they are, they can identify with um, some of the autistic traits that you've talked about today and are not sure what to do about that and whether to, to talk to anyone or get a diagnosis or maybe struggling internally. I just wondered if there's any messages that you might have to those people people listening the queer community and and the people and people on the spectrum it's full of uh, extremely diverse people um, and people in the queer community have a higher proportion of people with disorders like ASD um, like OCD ADHD things that, that make it harder for them to to function how society wants them to and at least more so than than the cisgender heterosexual population and they struggle to be accepted among their peers struggle to accept themselves and and uh, it can make things complicated but but my advice to them is you know never let anybody make you feel like you're broken you know like that like everybody deserves you know love and to be happy and to to find like meaning for their life in their own way and it's really easy especially on the spectrum to sort of you know compare yourself with a neurotypical or or hear people compare you with neurotypicals and you have to block that out because you're not like them and there are ways that you can use that um, as a good thing um, it gives you a different outlook on the world it you know it you might have some some heightened ability in your in your niche topics of interest and more importantly you can you can give everybody uh, you know you can educate people on how they're different but don't let anybody define that for you like it's it's your life and you deserve everything really absolutely absolutely thank you for that austin and i just wondered is there any websites that you might recommend to anyone listening that's perhaps identifies as lgbtq living with a development disorder uh, is there any um kind of um support services or websites that you might recommend austin yeah um so the trevor project is really good they provide um, a lot of support for um, for queer people and queer youth, um, they have a suicide hotline for for everyone. I think special resources for trans individuals and other gender nonconforming people. I I'm a Glad Campus ambassador, so I feel obligated to say Glad uh, because they talk about the representation of queer people in the media, and that very often coincides with with people who are atypical. I would recommend just generally seeking out resources that whether it's a therapist, like I, I had a therapist for 10 years um, and it helped a lot uh, just having somebody to talk to and, you know, to under, be understanding. But the greatest thing I think about, you know, at the very least being on the spectrum and being in the queer community is that the queer community is very used to feeling like the other. And so it's sort of very welcoming to people, at least in my experience, it's more welcoming than most communities uh, to people who are on the spectrum or who have other disorders because it's a sort of solidarity in being the, the other um, of society. Uh, and and it shows a lot of support, um, and it gen just generally promotes just a, a general feeling of acceptance. P flag, which in in the United States, I don't know if they have it in the UK, but they're uh, parents for um, for lesbian and gay youth, and uh, basically, you know, they're chapters all across the country. Um, they're clubs that queer young people and their parents, you know, can get together and and just have a, a nice community uh, wherever they live. 
Um, I think they're in most of the states here. I think maybe they're not in Mississippi, but but uh, yeah, Mississippi is particularly bad. But but those are some of the resources that I would start with. Thank you very much for that, Austin. So what would your kind of finish in, how would you sum this up then today in terms of what you, what's been your biggest lesson in life so far in terms of uh, what you've learned and you know, what you've been through and is there anything that you could sum up? I know you talked about honesty being a big a big thing earlier just tell us a bit more about that i think the biggest lesson to draw from this is that if you're if you know or you or you or you're dating somebody or you're married to someone who is on the spectrum or who has any disorder really um you have to sort of be in a continuing state of reminding yourself was i upset by this person or what they did if so I have to remind myself, like, it, it wasn't, it, like, they're not intending, very likely they're not intending to do so. Or if they were, like, maybe we should have a conversation. It's a, it's a, it's a lesson of understanding and patience and just, and just sticking through it. Um, because uh, it's just, it's, they have to realize that it's harder for, for people on the spectrum to deal with it. And then for people on the spectrum, it's the exact same thing, understanding and patience. You're not immediately going to understand how this relationship that you're in or this friendship that you have, you're not going to immediately understand how it works. Um, you're not going to have a nice answer. People are irrational. People make emotional decisions. And it's something I truly believe for at least people on the high functioning end um, to practice and practice. It's what I've been doing for years and years and years is practicing and getting better. And for people on the low functioning end, I mean, people just have to treat them better. Uh, my, you know, I've uh, been very lucky and it's not just people on the low functioning end of, of um, the autism spectrum, but it's also people with, with Down syndrome, uh, which who at my school were, were made fun of pretty frequently and I thought it was just horrible. But just anybody like that, you know, these people who are on the lower functioning end, like when you're friends or in a relationship with them, realize that they are probably, they have probably nothing but love for you or care about you. But it's just hard for them to express that. They very likely don't have the the, the traits that, that people have where like, oh, well, there is there is motive for me to be deceitful or deceptive or, or, or high things the only thing that they might feel like they need to hide is who they are and you need to and you know make them feel like they don't have to Austin it's been a real honor and privilege speaking to you today you're um, obviously an inspirational young man and I, I appreciate your your time and, and, and being a guest on my podcast so that's going to go a long way to helping many people across the world so um, keep up the good work Austin yeah thanks so much John um, and, and I really hope that uh, that people listen to this um, a lot of people listen to this and, and maybe have uh, maybe their outlook changed on these uh, on this topic so thank you so much for having me